0: welcome to another episode of Interregnum with Richard Seymour. A little over a week ago, US National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, speaking at the Atlantic Festival, rattled off a list of positive developments in the Middle East, which he argued had allowed the Biden administration to focus on issues elsewhere in the world. Referencing the truce in Yemen, a decline in hostility in the US's relationship with Iran, and what he characterised as America's stable residual presence in Iraq, he commented that, The Middle East region is quieter today than it has been in two decades. On Saturday, Sullivan's comments came back to haunt him, as Hamas carried out an unprecedentedly large-scale breakout from the Gaza Strip and launched attacks on the Israeli military and Israeli civilians that have claimed over 1,200 lives at the time of recording. Deaths on the Palestinian side from Israel's predictable assault on Gaza are heading towards parity, and undoubtedly those numbers will escalate dramatically as Israel continues its air campaign and prepares to launch a ground assault. The following interview with Richard was recorded earlier today, and before it became apparent that a national unity government would be formed in Israel. The situation is obviously very fast-moving, and in order to get the episode out as quickly as possible, it's been more lightly edited than is usual. We'll be doing more episodes on the conflict with experts on the region in the coming weeks, so do be sure to subscribe to the show. PTO depends almost entirely on listener support, so if you'd like to support our work, Please do also consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. So Richard, we're speaking as Israel gears up to launch a ground invasion of Gaza following Hamas's unprecedented actions on Saturday in which around 1,200 Israelis are currently believed to have been killed. Though, of course, those figures are probably subject to future revision and it's unclear what the ratio of military casualties to civilians precisely is. And, of course, we ought to be cautious. The story that 40 Israeli babies were beheaded by Hamas that led many front pages of of newspapers here appears to have since been discredited. But nonetheless, it seems clear that a great many civilians have died, including children. Meanwhile, in Gaza, it's being reported that over a 1,000 Palestinians have been killed so far and more than 5,000 wounded in Israeli airstrikes, and we can expect that number to increase dramatically in the coming days. Hamas has captured IDF soldiers and has taken civilians hostage and has threatened to kill hostages in response to Israeli airstrikes on Gaza. More than 100 Israelis are believed to be in captivity. The seemingly inevitable Israeli ground operation in Gaza will presumably mean an attempt to decapitate Hamas's military and political leadership in the territory, As well as the killing and capturing of thousands of Hamas fighters, as well as members of the PIJ, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the PFLP, General Command, and other Palestinian paramilitary forces. The civilian casualties in Gaza are surely going to be extremely severe and on a scale we've probably never seen in the conflict. And we've had Israeli politicians openly calling for a second Nakba and open calls for genocide against the Palestinians amongst supporters of Israel on social media and at protests. But before we talk more about the current situation, could you say something on just how unprecedented Hamas's actions on Saturday were, and how much of a step change it is from how the group has previously operated? It's
1: unlike anything we've ever seen from Hamas. Uh, Hamas's military strategy really begins with the training they got from Hezbollah in the early 1990s, because prior to that, their tactics I mean, they were not a military movement. They were primarily a social movement without much of an arm doing at that stage. They had a few knives and whatnot. Then the expulsion of 415 Hamas members from Gaza following the First Intifada led to them being taken under Hezbollah's wing in southern Lebanon where they acquired some of the means of fighting that they would eventually deploy. The the same means that Hezbollah used to free most of uh, southern Lebanon from the Israeli occupation, uh, which included the Kachusha rockets, suicide attacks, and the kidnapping of opposing soldiers. When the exiled Qaeda were able to return to Gaza in 1993, they came at a time, obviously, when the Palestinian leadership had given up on one-state nationalism in favor of the Oslo process. So they were trying to take the reins of leadership. They embarked on a wave of suicide attacks from 1993 to 97, killing about 175 people. And they, I mean, they did, Robert Pape's research on this suggests that they achieved some short-term tactical goals like the release of prisoners, but quite often also just induced a, a new wave of repression, um, especially under the first Netanyahu administration, which ex- did extensive damage to their political and military infrastructure. I mean, uh, just to sort of track this up to the present day, there's obviously the wave of suicide attacks during the Second Intifada. So from about September 2000 to November 2006, Hamas combined the tactics of suicide attacks, the abduction of Israeli soldiers, and rocket attacks. They weren't alone in using suicide attacks. It's often forgotten. It was also the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, which was the arm wing of Fatah, the PFLP, which is more or less moribund Islamic Jihad. Uh, that's because at that time they were thought to work better than any other military option they had. You know, they might kill a few troops, destroy some infrastructure, attack settlers, but most importantly demoralize Israeli public opinion and undermine support for repression. I, on the last point, I just don't think they achieved that at all. But as far as I know, the last suicide attack Hamas claimed responsibility for was before Israel's withdrawal from Gaza in 2005 when they attacked a checkpoint at Ghosh Khatif, so they abducted some Israeli soldiers. Uh, obviously, Corporal Gilad uh, Shalit, for whose release Israel eventually traded a thousand Hamas prisoners. But basically, since then, they have been basically trying to run Gaza as a rebel government. So they've been trying to provide, uh, you know, c- civil infrastructure, security, and so on, and govern Gaza, allowing Israel not to have to govern Gaza. They used Qassam rockets occasionally, um, which in the past had been uh, about as effective as pea shooters. Um There was actually an Israeli doctrine articulated by Major General Shamni, which was uh, just called stimulus and response. So the IDF would try and stimulate rocket attacks, and then when that brought an attacker out in the open, they would assassinate them. So obviously with the coup in 2006 by Fatah, which, uh, basically removed, uh, Hamas from government because they just won in a surprise victory, a sweeping victory, the Palestine legislative elections. They're restricted to Gaza. They're, um, basically, you know, uh, running schools, emptying bins, but they're also trying to be an insurgent movement, but they're extremely limited in what they uh, can do. So this allows Israel to basically focus on the West Bank, despite efforts at rebellion, you know, the March of Return in 2018, the 2021 Unity Intifada. Benjamin Netanyahu told his cabinet in 2019 that Israel should actually enable Hamas to keep control of Gaza because that would keep the Palestinians split. It would allow them to focus on their objectives in the West Bank. Hamas also avoided involvement in the conflict between Israel and Islamic Jihad in the Gaza Strip, where Israel actually engaged in several targeted killings of Islamic Jihad leaders. Basically, this was in part to drive a wedge between the two groups.
0: And Hamas has occasionally uh, prevented Islamic Jihad operations, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that they've been extremely strategically and tactically cautious And that's just part of the contradictory situation of being a rebel government, trying to maintain security for the people of Gaza, while also trying to be a resistance. But what this action says is they're just not doing that anymore. They're not going to run Gaza for Israel. That's over. So that is the sense in which it is utterly unprecedented.
0: Unless Hamas wildly exceeded their objectives and that seems actually increasingly possible they hadn't really imagined that they would be anything like as successful in their operational goals as they seem to have been But if that isn't the case, they surely must have been aware that the operation would provoke a devastating Israeli ground operation in Gaza, which we're about to see, and with everything that entails. What do you think prompted them to take uh, such a seemingly suicidal course of action? Some have suggested that a key factor is the Saudi-Israeli normalisation talks, which would have served to further isolate the Palestinians at a time when the conflict was increasingly being treated as a minor irritant in Israel and, and, and other states in the region. And the attack will surely make normalization impossible in the, in the short to medium term anyway. Alternatively, it's been suggested that Hamas hopes to provoke a wider uprising encompassing their operations from Gaza, an uprising in the West Bank, and, and strikes and civil disobedience amongst Palestinians inside the Green Line. So what's your best guess as to what Hamas actually intended to achieve with the attack?
1: Well, if we look specifically at what they did, that'll tell us something about it. So, first of all, they salvaged everything they had for this. They used steel from a British ship that sunk off the coast of Gaza. They used unexploded Israeli ordinances. They used their um, rudimentary manufacturing to produce the paragliders and rockets. They just made weapons out of every scrap they could get. They invested... A lot in this. And then when you look at the course of the Al-Aqsa operation, Operation Storm Al-Aqsa or something that was called, they bulldozed the prison fence. They swept across Southern Israeli towns and cities. They took over Southern Command headquarters. They took over police stations. They temporarily conquered areas of Palestine, lost to the Palestinians since 1948. They kidnapped about 150 people, many of them soldiers, and I believe some of them quite senior soldiers, but they also chose two soft targets. Now, there's some controversy in interpreting whether this was a spontaneous act of revenge or whether it was planned when they attacked the music festival and a kibbutz. and it looks like they killed there they killed everyone they could. Some of the more gruesome stories that you, as you mentioned, may be disinformation, but it nonetheless seems obvious that they did go after civilians. And my guess is that it was part of the strategy, and that um well, look, uh, it's no mystery. Some of those who were killed were opponents of the siege in Gaza. Most of them didn't really have any say in it. So it's really, really grim what happened. And it might be, as the Israeli journalist Hagai Matar says, just a slice of what the Palestinians have been going through. But it's it's still horrible. I don't believe myself that it's just a breakdown in political discipline or vengeance by a brutalized people, although that is still open. We, we're going to find out more about why that happened. But I think they intended something by attacking soft targets. To some extent, to me, that there would be partly the same basic idea as the suicide attacks, which is to frighten and demoralize Israeli opinion. We can support for the government. And in this case, importantly, demonstrate that Netanyahu's strategy of keeping Gaza under siege while annexing much of the West Bank through military-backed programs will not keep israel secure and if you look at the big picture i would say that everything they did was designed to break the deadlock and make the current situation which is one of slow strangulation and annexation untenable and obsolete and to that extent i think they've done that i think um they certainly wanted to kill the normalization talks which are probably dead but probably more important is what you mentioned in terms of the possibility of a wider uprising they have asked for arabs and muslims across the middle east to come out in a show of support this Friday. They've effectively drawn Hezbollah, who don't really want to be part of this war, into it largely because Israel started bombing Lebanon. So, for example, Hezbollah joined in a big rocket attack yesterday, timing their rockets to the north with Hamas's rockets to the south. One other fact is that they've decisively weakened Fatah and the Palestinian Authority, which has been moribund for some time often acting as an outsourced security agency for the Israelis. And Mahmoud Abbas is ill, he's 88 years old, and when he dies, it's not clear that Fatah will be able to keep control. Then the question, did they plan for the massive Israeli response? I mean, given that they'd be idiots not to, I have to assume they did. And that means they knew that Israel would kill them, all of Hamas's leading fighters in the Qassan brigades, which is not a huge army, about at most 40,000 people, but I would guess less than that. They would be targeted and killed. They knew that Hamas's civic and military infrastructure would be attacked and destroyed. They knew that the assault on Gaza would be unprecedented in its ferocity and supported by the U.S. government. So this was, as uh, I think Jimmy Allenson has put it, a blood sacrifice for the future. It's the logic of we will die standing rather than go slowly out on our knees. And my guess is that because Hamas is deeply rooted in the Gaza population, You know, not that everyone in Gaza likes Hamas, but it has always acted as a social movement. They didn't just decide, you know, like some paramilitary outfit to take a big historic gamble on behalf of the population. Rather, my guess is that their action is an expression mediated through Hamas's distinctive ideology and tactics of the real fury and despair of a large part of Gazan society after years of failed alternatives, from the Big March Return in 2018, which was massacred, to the Unity Intifada in 2021. What's interesting is, um, you know, not only are most Palestinian sources I can find saying, "Look, this was inevitable. We've been warning about this, and we were warning it would be ugly." But so are the remaining sane voices in Israel. I mean, even Haaretz, which is the voice of liberal Zionism, is saying very clearly, this is the Israeli government's fault. They could add that Biden shares some responsibility since he basically fully signed up to Trump's policy in the Middle East, which was to ignore the Palestinians, to uh, uh, recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, regardless of international law, and use the normalization talks to get the region under, under control, under the thumb. And basically treat the Palestinians as an irritants. And that's why Biden, I think, has reacted the way he has, with unqualified support for Israel. So whether this proves to be a colossal strategic overreach or not, partly depends on what Israel is able to get away with now and how much they want a wider war. They are clearly preparing for a major bloodbath as a demonstration of their power. You know, they're arming settlers, they're readying the ground invasion, they're bombing Lebanon. The bombing of Gaza is much more brutal and just constant than in previous attacks, short of outright genocide, which is clearly a distinct possibility here, because you got one Israeli politician from Likud, Tali Gottlieb, tweeting calls for a nuclear strike. You've got the defense minister calling his victims human animals. You've got uh, pro-Zionists protesting, calling for genocide. And on social media, the calls for genocide. I mean, this is not new, by the way, but it's hard to see, unless they actually were to wipe out the whole population or the majority of it, it's hard to see how Israel doesn't end up in a lot of unmanageable situations. Because can they destroy Hamas entirely, given how deeply rooted it is in the population? And if they can't, and if Hamas won't govern Gaza for them, is disengagement over. If they're busy in Gaza, can they really fight a war in Lebanon too? If they do face a wider regional uprising, how can they manage that? Do they really want their allied dictatorships to be destabilized? There are many contingencies here. So this does look disastrous for Gaza, but it doesn't look good for Israel either. Because while it's very clear that Israel is going to punish uh, Gaza quite severely, The strategic gambit of Hamas that Israel will be weakened uh, in the aftermath, that the government will be divided, that the divisions within Israeli society will split wider apart, that the normalization process will be killed and that the forces basically congealing around Israel in the region will be disoriented and destabilized, that's not a stupid gambit. So we don't really honestly know what the strategic outcome is going to be. But I can't see it being good for either side in the aftermath.
0: On that point you make about the deep rootedness of of Hamas in Gaza, I mean, presumably there's a dynamic whereby, because Hamas is the most effective military opponent Israel has, that even if one is not on board with Hamas's social agenda or its religiosity, that, you know, if you're a Palestinian, and particularly if you're a Palestinian who's been, you know, very directly impacted by the conflict, I mean, you know, almost impossible not to be, but, you know, someone has died in your family, say, and you want to fight the Israelis, not unsurprising if you then go and join Hamas, right?
1: Sure, 100%. And I think that Hamas, it's its a mistake to think that everybody that they're recruiting and joining is a rabid fundamentalist. I mean, the political culture of Hamas is complicated because, of course, it is an offshoot of the Muslim brothers. It is an offshoot of a very right-wing form of uh, political Islam and of anti-colonial nationalism. But if you look at, for example, the fact that their recruiters are young women who don't wear the hijab, you know, they're not veiled. If you look at the way in which they have tried to build across the sectarian divide, even though their emphasis is always in building up a a, a sort of repertoire of sound Muslims, right? their orientation culturally and politically is not straightforwardly what you would assume it is. It doesn't mean they're not pretty right wing and it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, we, we can't criticize anything they say or do. It just means that uh, they are, are building roots and have been building roots in the Gazan population by being quite intelligent about it. And yes, ab- you're absolutely right that their ability to continue military resistance against Israel when the Palestinian Authority and Qatar basically gave up is a big part of why they have this cred. And obviously that would be, After this attack, I'm thinking it will be sky-high among Palestinians at the moment. Even if they don't agree with everything that they did, the point is that they tore a big hole in Israel's sense of its own omnipotence.
0: On the possibility of an attempt to ethnically cleanse Gaza... What could any such attempt look like? Because the only place for the Palestinians to go is Egypt. That would completely unhinge Israel's hitherto pretty friendly relations with Egypt. Egypt helps to maintain Gaza as this sort of, you know, enormous open-air prison. Or is it possible that it's, you know, rather than one event, it's intensification of what we've already seen and that, Israel manages to really make Gaza absolutely uninhabitable. I mean, we've seen one Israeli, I think, military figure saying, you know, there will be no buildings in Gaza, there will only be tents. And at some point is is the expectation that they will be able to just, you know, force a a very substantial part of the the population to leave.
1: Yeah, and I'd also... You've seen Israeli politicians calling for a, a second Nakba, which is interesting because previously they didn't acknowledge the existence of the first Nakba. You know, this massive ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, 700,000 Palestinians in 1948. I think they could possibly get away with a genocide here. But what that would look like to me, it would involve killing hundreds of thousands of people, as um, a U.S. general basically warned, was likely on CNN the other morning. Creating a new refugee population, if indeed the Egyptian dictatorship could be incentivized to open the gates and tolerate their presence, which Israel may be able to come up with uh, sufficient incentives for them to do so, I don't know. Then using an even more vigorous blockade on the remaining population to accelerate the pattern of what's called de-development, where basically Gazan living standards are currently worse than before the First Intifada. They could make uh, Gaza a graveyard, they could make it look worse than Grozny. And if they're able to do that while avoiding a wider uprising, um if Hamas's gambit on people um taking to the streets doesn't uh, isn't realized, then Israel could have their way with the West Bank. Uh, they would be closer to the destruction of Palestinian nationhood that they have long sought. Problem is, as I say, short of outright annihilation of the whole population. I mean, genocide doesn't have to include the destruction of the whole population. The, the definition is uh, attempt to destroy in whole or in part. Um, and I think that the attempt to destroy part is very clearly there. The problem is uh, short of annihilating the whole population or of the majority of it, let's say, is it even credible that they could get rid of Hamas? And if they can't, and Hamas won't run the place for them, who are they gonna get to run it? you know, the Palestinian authority would have no authority. Direct rule, dangerous. It comes with certain burdens, certainly under international law, though that doesn't really count with Israel these days and hasn't for a long time. Maybe among the more affluent in Gaza, there might well have been at one stage an incipient capitalist class that would find it advantageous to do business with Israel, but I doubt it. So they seem to be in for a long war with the people of Gaza and with Hamas dug in. And that's the context of The sociologist Martin Shaw has written about a process of degenerative war, where essentially in war situations, the distinction between civilian and combatant is progressively eroded in a way that basically allows you to destroy masses of people because you are aware as a military force that the enemy uh, has popular support and swims within that popular support. And therefore, you begin to turn quite genocidal in that sense. And then, of course, there's the other dynamic, which Michael Mann has talked about uh, in his book, The Dark Side of Democracy, where essentially the ethos of democracy gets perverted into murderous cleansing because the demos is completed with the ethnos. And that that process is already well underway in Israel. So there would be, like you say, something like a process wherein the ideology of murderous nationalism combined with the degenerative condition of war could lend itself to annihilation. To me, the most likely situation is a very bloody, messy one with a great deal of destruction in which many, many Israeli soldiers are going to die. I mean, already, I think, you know, one day Hamas, just the other day, Hamas killed more Israeli soldiers than died during the whole invasion of Lebanon in 2006. But also there's going to be masses of Gazans killed, probably amounting to genocide by historical standards, in which Israel nonetheless comes out politically weaker but there's no final end one way or the other for uh you know for this conflict that would be my assumption but you know I don't want to give the impression of, of being uncharacteristically optimistic about any of this um the the end result is going to be ghastly uh, either way
0: Obviously, what is likely to occur is going to presumably hinge very significantly on the, on the degree of support for Israel outside of the region, and, and thus far we've seen an extremely vehement show of support from the United States, Britain, the EU and EU member states, and, and, and of course Ukraine's Vladimir Zelensky, who's you know, showing a, you know, a remarkable lack of sympathy for another people living under occupation. We've had statements of unconditional support for Israel, remarks to the effect that no one should tell Israel how the country should defend itself which seems to be an implicit endorsement that Israel can carry out war crimes if it so wishes. You know, why should it be wrong to say to Israel that you shouldn't target target and kill civilians? There have been announcements, though there has been some backtracking on this, that aid to the Palestinians will be cut off. Meanwhile, the US has deployed an aircraft carrier group to the eastern Mediterranean, and there's, there's reports that a second carrier group may also be deployed, a pretty unprecedented show of force. The Americans are promising to give Israel whatever military assistance it, uh, you know, quote-unquote needs. What do you make of the responses we've seen and how does that contrast with how Israeli war crimes and, and, and the routinized violence and structural violence of the occupation is treated? And also, to what extent do you think this is a temporary phenomenon? It's, you know, after all, it, although this, the scale might be unusual, it's it's not untypical for Israel to have very seemingly sort of rock solid support at the start of a conflict and for that to wane over time as, as the effects of public uh, opinion and sympathy for the plight of the Palestinians becomes more apparent. And also the Biden administration say they're not idiots. You know, At some level, they are presumably aware that the endlessness of the conflict is to do with Israel's intransigence over the occupied territories. And it's not impossible to imagine that at some point they call the Israelis off.
1: Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And it's very important that the um, excitement at the beginning generally wanes and that the contradictions uh, are reactivated, let's say, and that the coalition behind Israel starts to pull apart. But I think there's an historic shift taking place here. The um, welton shang winds have all but destroyed the old ideologies of liberal internationalism that I used to write about in respect to Palestine, the idea of two states, you know, negotiated settlements, the rule of law, the US as a partner in peace, the notion that the international community doesn't tolerate human rights abuses and has a responsibility to protect Well, the gales of historical change have just left all that in ruins. I mean, for example, look at Biden's uh, recent nuptials with Narendra Modi. They're as frictionless as when Trump was in office. When the Gujarat pogrom happened in 2002, it was pretty widely condemned. Modi had his visas revoked by various states, not all of them entirely comfortable with it, but... um, Come 2014, he's welcomed with open arms by Obama when he becomes the uh, prime minister of India, by the economist, by big business, by several Democratic and Republican politicians, several pogroms later. And it isn't just Delhi we're talking about, the Delhi pogrom in 2020. I made wave after wave of incitement, you know, kill two million of them, do a Rohingya on them, all that stuff, which is just constant. Biden is Modi's buddy. Doesn't have a bad word to say about him. Not even a whiff of embarrassment or fake concern. Moody's loves Modi. Capitalism has discovered this elective affinity with vengeful nationalism, not for the first time. What of Israel? Well, none of the mounting criticisms by human rights organizations who finally got around to calling it an apartheid state after the nation state law. None of that seems to matter anymore. You know, and you might ask why? Why does the discourse of international legality have such little traction? You know, I fully believe that Israel still has its lawyers drafting legal justifications for whatever it wants to do, because that's uh, part of how the world works. But the power of the ideology, to my mind, appears to be residual rather than organic. Um, Israel's passed fully into this realm of gangsterism, rule, power politics, you know, crude, soros baiting conspiracism, alliances with far-right governments across the world, and of course the mainstreaming of fascist and eliminationist thought domestically. And since vengeful nationalism is the spirit of the age, no one bats an eyelid at its exuberant violence, because its enemies, as far as the, uh, the Western world are concerned, are a far bigger problem. So that's what happens, that's what's happening when Biden and Sunak offer unqualified support to Israel, when the far-right Home Secretary, Suela Braverman, tells police to arrest pro-Palestine protesters, when Germany where the Alliance for Deutschland is surging to second place, basically outlaws protest over Gaza, when France, basically uh, pro-Palestine protesters, are beaten and tear-gassed by French police. Or when in America, a pro-Palestine protest is denounced by left-wing politicians like AOC... And when lawfare against BDS and the blind eye turned to the massacres of uh, the March of Return and the suppression of the Unity Intifada and the rolling pogroms in the West Bank and the hundreds killed over the last two years in Gaza in a supposedly quiet period are all part of that reaction. And if I were a Palestinian, I would probably conclude that the world, or at least its major powers, basically has it in for the Palestinians. That for a combination of historical, geopolitical, and psychological reasons, the existence of the Palestinian people is a problem and a nightmare for the West, which they've just not been able to solve. And that for some reason or another, I had become a symptom of global disorder that the powerful states wished to destroy. And I might be forgiven for turning to the ideational resources of a community of the devout you know, or sound Muslims or whatever it is, in whom at least there is sufficient will and discipline to resist what's coming. Um, they are so, so much more isolated, so much weaker internationally because of the nationalist reaction that the world's been going through and its destruction of the cultures of solidarity and struggle that might have helped them. And also its destruction of the residual cultures of reason and rational thought. So I think that the, all of this that we're seeing it's not just a recapitulation of earlier patterns that we will see some of that. We have seen a, a sort of a major historical shift.
0: Can I ask you a question just on a point of fact, Richard, first? Sorry, I haven't read a detail about what AOC said about the protest. Was she criticising the fact of the rally itself or was it the alleged anti-Semitic chanting or, the, or the, there was a Nazi emblem supposedly on show and so on?
1: Well, if there was a Nazi emblem supposedly on show, that needs to be shut down. I don't know anything about that. I think that the reporting on this was quite nebulous as to what problematically happened within the protest. But I have to say that when you're at a protest, it's not something that you, can, you can't entirely control what's going to happen. So it's quite possible that there are some idiots doing stupid things. But I don't think you respond to that from the left by denouncing the whole thing. And I think that the inability on the part of American politicians of the left to say anything remotely humanizing Gaza and Palestinians and referring to the justice of their cause and, you know, even allowing for the fact that protesting over what Israel is doing and is about to do is perfectly legitimate. I think that's a sign of real weakness. But yes, you could be right. There could be something deeply problematic that happened at that protest that had to be criticised. I just don't think that's the way to do it.
0: If we turn for a moment to the situation within Israel, so we, we've seen this sort of, you know, the predictable rally around the flag effect, which has uh, at least, uh, you know, as you as you described, sort of temporarily ameliorated divisions within the country over the judicial reforms and, and has perhaps reduced the increasing hostility between secular and, and religious Israelis even if there's clearly a great deal of anger nonetheless towards the government for the failure to predict or respond effectively to Hamas' attacks on, on Saturday. Do you think the ascendant far right, represented by Basil El-Smutrich, the finance minister, and Itamar Ben-Gavir, the minister of national national security, do you think they will be discredited after all Hamas' attack occurred on their watch? Or do you think that even if individual politicians and military and security personnel may be reputationally damaged, the radicalising effect of this round of of the conflict means that the far right will just continue to become more powerful within Israel?
1: It's a bit of both. Because, I mean, first of all, a lot depends on whether Gantz, uh, Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid are lured into a unity government, which Netanyahu has offered. Currently looks unlikely, given that Netanyahu is not willing to exclude the farthest right constituents of the administration. So that's obviously very important to him. I think he's guessed politically that that's where the future lies. don't think he's wrong about that. But that would be the only way to neutralize the liberal criticism and it would be quite efficacious and i think rather what's going to happen is you're going to see more polarization so that you know one of the things that's been striking about the protests against netanyahu uh, in recent months has been the absolute absence of palestine from them but what we're seeing now uh, is that there is a body of liberal criticism which says, you know, bracketing the complicity of uh, politicians like Benny Gantz with the crushing of Gaza and the expansion of the West Bank, bracketing the complicity of the Israeli center and center left in all of these policies. The criticism is that Netanyahu's policy of annexation and uh, ignoring the Palestinians led to this. Well, that's got some validity. Like I say, you know, it's not, it's, it, it, it's not the whole story by any means. And uh, my guess is that quite a lot of Israelis in the, you know, aftermath, when cooler heads prevail, will be thinking that this is an effect of policies which perhaps in the past they didn't give enough attention to, that they just kind of ignored, or that they were complicit in, at least uh, in terms of the liberal leadership. So, there might be uh, some polarization on that front. I think they will be scared of um, the prospects dangled before them by the Israeli far right who just want uh, escalated war. I mean, the interesting thing about Israel is that it's always shadowed by the prospect of annihilation. I mean, obviously, the Samson doctrine, you know, the Samson option where you have a nuclear weapon in order that if the existence of Israel as a state is ever threatened, You can just bring down the whole region with you. And I I think that that is basically reflective of an ideology, an apocalyptic ideology that is built into Zionism. Jacqueline Rose has written about this very insightfully, I think. And I think that the far right thrive on the prospect of annihilation. They thrive on the idea of threat. I mean, they always massively exaggerate the real threats that they face. There was a, an essay by Ilan Pape in the New Left Review Sidecar blog recently about just that, where they tend to perceive, you know, there was a, an accident, uh, I think it was in Jerusalem, which was blamed on terrorism, and this became a major crisis, and so on. Um, so the, they thrive on the idea of threat and uh, on the relief uh, of that, the discharge of that anxiety through bloodletting. Um, through uh, assertions of dominance and supremacy. Uh, and that's the kind of emotional substratum for uh, the pogroms that have been taking place in the West Bank and the collective violence that we've seen generally. And uh, I think there will be a big part of Israeli uh, Israeli public opinion that will like that and want that. Um, that's been a growing constituency for a long, long time. At least half of public opinion is in favor of, uh, forcible expulsion of Palestinians. And it's pretty clear what that means. But I think there'll be another half that will think this is, uh, this is derangement. We don't want to die. I think we would rather have a sort of capitalist peace if that were still possible. So I think that it will polarize. I just the, the, one of the problems is that Israel, because of its colonial constitution, structurally seems to not make much space for a post-Zionist or anti-Zionist left. That is, a left that would be genuinely capable of allying with Palestinians and providing a realistic alternative to Zionism and its death drive. But yes, I, I would I would imagine the far right will be strengthened. I would imagine there will be more polarization. I would imagine the, the governments will be much more volatile, ongoingly volatile, as they have been. That's my guess for what's going to happen in Israel.
0: On a different topic, what's your opinion so far of, of Western media coverage of the situation? Do you think it's been much worse than during prior periods of escalation? or Or, or do you think that the gradual decline in international support for Israel in public opinion that's been going on for decades now is being reflected somewhat in the commentators that are appearing in the media and the way in which the situation is being reported on.
1: The situation is contradictory on that front. So, for example, in the United States, there have been the beginnings of an ideological breach with Israel. That's been evident, I think, since uh, 2014. Actually, probably since Kar in 2008-2009. So you get mainstream outlets like CNN broadcasting interviews and statements by Palestinians, which are, you know, pretty devastating for uh, Israeli propaganda. You get the Washington Post, uh, where democracy dies in darkness. You get op-eds by Palestinians. I think in the UK, by contrast, there has actually been a hardship to the right. I mean, you do still get this humanitarian interest in Palestine, reflected in some broadcasts and reports. But the first noticeable trend was that when this was being reported in relation to the Labour Party conference, journalists first asked not about policy, but about anti-Semitism, which I think is a very sinister trend. The second trend is that where Palestinian guests are interviewed, they're rarely allowed to say anything before they're asked to condemn their own side. Or they're slandered in their absence, as when Kay Burley claimed that the Palestinian ambassador said that Israel had it coming. Which is, by the way, at moments like that, you see that this sassy vulgarisation that passes itself off as challenging journalism is basically, in almost every uh, case, reactionary. Then the third trend is that these maniacal Israeli pronouncements have been permitted to pass. So to me, it was striking that when the Israeli defence minister announced the full siege on Gaza, obviously most British news didn't report this as a war crime. But at first, they also tactfully left out the part where he said Israel was fighting human animals, that um, bestialization of the enemy while announcing a a sort of collective punishment. The final trend has been the standard harassment of leftists and the attempt to get them fired. So the Daily Mail just went after Ashok Kumar and Mabi Shamad. And with that, you know, that bullying, that harassment, the mainstreaming of quite fascistic attitudes to protest and political opposition under the rubric of opposing anti-Semitism. So I mean, you might uh, know that one of the things that framed the Home Secretary's letter to the police asking for them to arrest protesters who waved the Palestinian flag or chanted from the river to the sea was a story about an anti-Semitic attack in Gold Screen. And when that was reported, I, I you know, I, I, I know, just gave a deep sigh of, um, uh, exasperation, because uh, you know it wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't be impossible for that to happen uh, for some idiot to go around and do something racist and stupid. It now appears that may have been a burglary with a pecuniary motive, but it was used to justify an authoritarian crackdown on political opposition.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's clearly a, a a bit of a dynamic of you know report first, check the facts later. Right now, yeah,
1: yeah. Absolutely. And that's why, you know, I think people uh, would be well advised to be very careful about the information they share. Not just, it's not just about Israeli Hasbara. I mean, the social industry is a fucking disinformation machine. You know, you get uh, the RT journalist, Russia Today journalist uh, sharing stuff that is dubious. I mean, we should just be careful about what uh, we're paying attention to. And certainly atrocity stories should be treated with a priori suspicion. But the trend has been, you know, dehumanizing Palestinians, kid gloves treatment of lunatic Israeli statements, criminalizing support for the Palestinians. I mean, I would say that with regard to the British media, we're in a deeply reactionary authoritarian movement. But as you say, I don't know that that will hold up as Israel's war continues.
0: Just going back to Iran and Hezbollah for a moment. So there's obviously been a lot of discussion around Iran's supposed role and and whether Iran was involved in the planning of the operation and whether Iran even greenlit it or or was the driving force behind it even possibly. And uh, another aspect of of the discussion around Iran and Hezbollah is whether they are militarily and psychologically ready for a major conflict with Israel. Although Hezbollah's arsenal is believed to be more formidable than it was preceding the 2006 Lebanon war, the country's in a severe economic and social crisis. There seems to be very little appetite for war. It's not as severe, but Iran's economic situation is also not good. And the political and religious establishment have, of course, spent the last few years combating major domestic opposition, centering particularly on the oppression of Iranian women. So do you think the regionalization of the war is actually more likely to be something that occurs because Israel decides it wants to escalate? Or do you think Iran and Hezbollah are are actually geared up and want to to fight?
1: I mean, first of all, my gut instinct is that uh, Iran didn't want any part of this. They may have uh, had some inkling of what was going to happen, but neither the US nor the Israeli military are pushing this angle yet. They're both downplaying it. I think iran's position is they've just cut a deal with saudi arabia negotiated by the chinese they've resumed diplomatic relations with the united arab emirates they cut a prisoner deal with the us they're trying to set up a regional forum that would exclude the us and israel but allow them to build their alliances with gulf states they've had this opportunity due to the fact that u.s foreign policy pivoted away from the middle east and toward conflict with china which really begins with Obama's pivot to Asia, continues with Trump's trade war, which is accelerated under Biden. This situation brings the US right back in. Uh, That's problematic for them. Also, bear in mind, Hamas has only recently been reconciled with Iran and Hezbollah after uh, Hamas's support for the Syrian revolution against Assad, where Hezbollah was actually fighting for Assad. So given this, I don't think Hamas acts merely as a proxy for Iranian interests, as the Israeli president Isaac Herzog claims. I think this is more about Hamas's needs in relation to the Palestinian struggle than Iran's need.
0: I suppose it's, it's a convenient narrative, isn't it, to suggest that Hamas is merely a proxy, because then Israel doesn't need to th- do anything to address the fundamental causes of, of the conflict, being its project of dispossession of the Palestinians and, and the gradual sort of digestion of, of the West Bank.
1: Yeah, 100%. And, uh, you know, uh, but I don't think everybody's going to buy it. And, uh, you know, so it, this is a bombast and boilerplate that has long been used by Israel in its international declarations. We shouldn't give that much attention to it. In terms of um, regionalization of war, look, militarily, I think perhaps both Iran and Hezbollah could be ready for war. Iran's manpower is certainly bigger than Israel's. Its stock of hardware is comparable, um, although, of course, it doesn't have the nuclear option, which we should be thinking about very carefully at the moment. So, for example, Israel is reported to have 601 aircrafts compared to Iran's 541. Iran has twice as many tanks as Israel. Iran's Navy is bigger than Israel's. What makes the difference is that Israel has international backers and that ultimately the US might be willing to weigh in on Israel's side. Though I think they would rather be, you know, not get bogged down in fighting a major land war in the Middle East again. As for Hezbollah, obviously, qualitatively and quantitatively, a much smaller armed force doesn't have a navy, doesn't have an air force, um, as the Lebanese army does. But it wouldn't fight a regular war; it would fight an asymmetric war. Um, what Nasrallah calls the resistance warfare method, and that's been proved to be quite capable. Um, In the past, um, with its resources, which do include tens of thousands of trained soldiers, anti-aircraft, anti-ship weapons, they've been able to defeat Israel before. Those advantages, by the way, would mainly accrue in a, in a defensive war in Lebanon. If they try to invade northern Israel, I think Israeli sur- surveillance and firepower would just completely overwhelm them. In terms of the political and economic background, though, I do think you're uh, onto something here. Hezbollah has been weakened by its engagement in Syria from which it's shown no real benefits for the base. And in the ensuing economic crisis, it struggled to pay its fighters properly. It's faced popular movements that blame the whole political establishment, including Hezbollah, for the social misery of the country. It's lost big in the parliamentary elections last year, as turnout in the Shiite areas collapsed. It would clearly benefit from a period of patient rebuilding, so a war now could be a problem for them. The problem is, if Israel forces a war, they can't duck it. Uh, Their cadres will not allow that. And you know, honourably fighting it may restore their credibility with the public, who would be angry about Israeli bombing. But I think Hezbollah's participation, uh, for example, in the recent rocket attacks, is probably felt as forced rather than an enthusiastic choice. In terms of the dynamic between Iran and Israel, it's slightly different. I mean, Iran's economy, you mentioned, is not very dynamic, and the government has faced unrest uh, since last September after Massa Amini was killed by the morality police. But then Israel's economy is growing at roughly the same rate, actually a little bit slower. um, And it's about to take a big hit from the war and the loss of tourism. Its government's also very weak and it's been faced with these mass protests. You know, Israel's a deeply divided society and a bit of fascist tumult. And that's what makes it particularly dangerous. So my gut says that Iran and Hezbollah don't really want a war. But at the same time, Israel would be making a mistake to think that it could use this situation for a wider expansionist offensive to demonstrate its power or whatever. They may not want a war, but I think they might be capable of fighting one if Israel forces it.
0: Given the current situation, I mean, it obviously seems almost absurd to be talking about a solution to the conflict because we're so distant from that. It's very, it's almost impossible to imagine any kind of negotiated solution. But when we think about the possible long term solutions, the sort of the two two primary ones and the two that have held support amongst the Palestinian uh, resistance movements have been either the so-called one state or binational state solution, which envisages a democratic state in all of the land of historic Palestine, encompassing what is currently Israel, but also the occupied territories. Alternatively and for, for a long time this was sort of the, the dominant solution that was discussed was the two-state settlement in which Palestine would consist of an unoccupied West Bank and Gaza and the removal of settlers and, and you know potentially some kind of land swaps of, of some kind or other. That would mean not really doing a great deal for the the refugee population outside of Israel Palestine itself and in many ways seems you know an extremely unjust solution to the, to the conflict, but those who advocate for it, often make the point that, well, you know, if, if one considers the extent of hatred between the two sides, a two-state solution might at least uh, take just some of the sting out of the, the conflict and might allow for further developments down the line. And advocates of the two-state solution, you know, just regard the one-state solution as, you know, the optimal solution, the just solution, but really as, as rather fantastical given current realities. And I can certainly see why people would, would think that at the moment, given, given where we're at now. What's your view on the one-state, two-state question?
1: I mean, I have always been a one-stater in that sense, but I don't foreclose the possibility of negotiating a two-state settlement as a, a stepping point on the way to um something better because, I'll tell you why, first of all, I think that two states um heavily armed as a Palestinian state would have to be would probably be in regular danger of, of going to war. And I think that the danger mostly would fall on the Palestinian side. They would be the ones most likely to be victimized by it. I think that uh, Israel, as it is constituted as a Zionist state, and as long as it's constituted as a Zionist state, committed to uh, the, um, uh, you know, the, the supremacy of its Jewish population, um would find the existence of a Palestinian nation and a Palestinian nation state in particular unbearable. Um, and I think certainly the Israeli right would not be able to cope with that. The, so the temptation would always be to expand further and the settlers would always, uh, encroach and Israeli military would back them up. So I don't think, and by the way, I mean, it's just unworldly at this point to talk about two states there is just not the infrastructure for that um they, there is a, one state where Israeli military uh, and settler power has you know protruded its networks throughout the occupied territories and the question is whether it will be an apartheid state or not now I think we can't second guess you know what kind of interim options may become available it may be that uh this situation by Blowing open the whole question has forced the possibility of a two state option back onto the agenda. I very much doubt it, but it's possible. And I don't think we should uh, foreclose, you know, strategic and tactical options here. We have to consider prospects realistically. But I think at this stage, the objective has to be to basically form a movement that would get Israel to become, you know, a normal Liberal democracy, if such a thing exists. In other words, I mean one that uh, is not predicated on ethnicity, one where citizenship is not predicated on ethnicity primarily, and where, uh, you know, the Palestinians could be accepted as citizens with equal rights and passports. That would not be, uh, obviously, uh, you know, put it like this that would not be a utopia because. Uh, even in a post-Zionist state of Israel, unless you know the state of Israel had been militarily defeated, there would be a lot of racism. There would be a lot of uh, contempt and mistreatment of the Palestinian residents. But I think that uh, the idea of having two states—I mean, there just isn't material basis for it now. I think that's dead long ago. Maybe a couple of decades ago, that was a realistic discussion. It wouldn't have been you know, a just outcome, but it had some basis in what international governments wanted and what international law said. But I think we're just long past that now. So the situation is actually quite bleak. You know, the contradictions of the situation have become more intractable, but that means we should be looking at a sort of one state binational settlement. And it's not that that's not going to be easy, but I think that should be the strategic horizon.
0: What, in your opinion, do you think that people on the left, outside of the region, people in the UK, say, or the United States or in Europe, what do you think people can usefully be doing in response to the situation right now?
1: Well, first thing, nobody should take strategic advice from me. I don't have a great record on this sort of thing, um, but there are a few things that are bubbling away in my mind that might be useful to think about. First we talked a little bit about this earlier. Uh, we shouldn't be intimidated by the atmosphere of violent excitement dressed up as sanctimonious outrage, because that passes, it always does. There comes a more sober moment in which people start thinking again. It usually turns out that the left analysis was basically correct. More importantly, there comes a moment when the coalition, held together by this moral preppism and this narcissistic solidarity with people like us, breaks down, and the contradictions that then open up will give us opportunities if we hold firm at the moment. We've conceded way too much in recent years as we were witch-hunted over mostly spurious allegations of anti semitism against the left. We've weakened our position as a result, but it isn't lost. Second, we should not engage with any form of publicity, particularly social media, as though we had to make press statements about everything. We're not fighting, first of all, we're not, you know, press personnel, we, we, we don't have public relations strategies, we're not fighting on an even playing field. So we should be assiduous in repeating and driving home the points specifically that we want people to be thinking about, not responding to media talking points all the time. We should not engage with ideological Zionists and right-wing trolls or anyone else who will basically waste our time and force us to debate monstrosities. If they're not in good faith, block them. If they are, but you're still unlikely to persuade them in this format, ignore or mute, move on. Don't say stupid shit. Don't give your political enemies a means to attack you. Don't perform high-mindedness or political hardness. I mean, who are you performing for? The imaginary tribunal of your enemies, that's who. Keep to the point. Israel is a violent, occupying power, threatening what could be a genocide against Gaza, and we have to mobilize every possible avenue of sympathy to stop that. Third, of course, protests are important and necessary, but they are punctuating moments. They're rallying points for other actions that will be more enduring. My hunch is probably the most important thing is that we resume the BDS fight uh, on a higher level. And that's a form of practical solidarity that uh, it it might actually work. That's why they're using lawfare against us. That's why they're threatening people's careers over it. It might work. Finally, and it's not just about Palestine but if you look at the politics of the Israeli government and its international allies, if you look at the global rise of far-right nationalism, uh, incipient fascism and its connection to the current phase of capital accumulation and imperialism, we have to totalize. In other words, in our analysis, we have to understand this in terms of a totality in which we're all involved and implicated. In other words, this story is also about us and it will come to us so we can't just see it as a fight happening somewhere far away that uh, we only dimly understand this is quite urgent and it's uh, it's it's about uh, the situation indeed i would repeat what i said earlier for some reason which is not to do with the palestinians per se but to do with the way the world system works the palestinians have become its global symptom the embodiment of all the crises and instabilities of the global system and that's the Sort of sense in which we should analyse this crisis and this conflict. Those who, that would be my advice, but I'm sure I'm sure other people have more interesting and useful things to say about that than I do.
0: You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast app you use. It really does help to bring in new listeners. The show's music and graphic design is produced by Planet B Productions. I'll be back with the regular show soon.